Hey, everybody, and welcome to this week's episode of the Plucking Up Podcast. I am really excited for you to hear from a friend of a friend who I think after this episode, I can just say my friend, (laughs) Mike Foster. Mike is a best-selling author, speaker, and executive coach, and I really enjoyed our conversation specifically around his vocational journey. Mike is very entrepreneurial. He is a founder. He built and grew a company that he really loved and cared a lot about but got to his point, a point in his journey where he realized it might be time to move on and let go. And so we kind of talk through those vocational transitions, how you know it's time, what it looks like, what it feels like. And then I was really interested in the pluck up that Mike shared with us, because let me tell you this, his season of plucking up was very public. It was very public. It happened on the internet and it lasted kind of a long time and it had pretty big implications. And, you know, the bigger the pluck up, honestly, the bigger the wisdom and the lessons that we can learn from it. I'm super grateful for how honest and open Mike was in sharing not just the highlights, but some of the more challenging seasons of his journey. I think you're going to learn a lot. So without further ado, here's my conversation with Mike Foster. Mike Foster, super grateful to have you on the show and to get to know you a little bit more. I mean, selfishly for me, but also for our listeners. So thank you so much for being here. Thanks, Liz. I'm I'm super stoked to be talking with you today. I'm really excited. This This episode feels a little bit meta to me because as I shared, like a big kind of thesis of the show, the, the big juicy question or one of two that we're answering on this show is like, how? How do we build lives and businesses of purpose and passion and impact and vocationally and all of these things? And we're talking about that, but I'm talking about that with somebody who's kind of made a life talking about that. So this is where it's starting to feel very meta in a way that I'm really excited about. Me too. I I can't, I mean, this is going to be hopefully one of your best podcasts ever. And that's going to be yeah. hard to top because I, I know you this, this is a, you just do such a fantastic job with this podcast. That's why I'm excited to talk to you. Oh, well, that's very sweet. Well, let's get started by telling us, take us as far back as you're willing to go into the Mike Foster story. Tell us a little bit about who you were as a kid, your lived experience, upbringing, family of origin, and maybe just with a few things that you can either look at and go like, yeah, in hindsight, I started to see the seeds of this, or perhaps we can't draw that clear of a connection, but we just kind of want to know if you'll, if you'll start by taking us back. Yeah. You know, one of the things that I believe about our stories is that so much of who we are today is formed by our early childhood experiences. And so I think I'm for sure an example of that, both good, both positive and negative. And so like on the positive side, my story, I grew up in a a great home with uh, two parents, uh, went to church every Sunday, vacation Bible school uh, in the summer, you know, did the whole kind of mm-hmm. like good kid sort of stuff and yeah. um, wasn't able to listen to to rock and roll. Like Kiss, in my, I grew up in um, the 80, early 80s and uh, like the band Kiss was seen as satanic in my family. Okay. So very mm-hmm. conservative, very mm-hmm. kind of like 
Um, but the other thing that happened in my family is, man, my parents established a really strong work ethic. Uh, mm. I was, I started my first business probably at 10, 11 years old, selling yeah. avocados yes. on the street corner for, you know, three for a dollar. And I think that was a pretty good deal, actually. That was a very then. good deal. If you could bring back the three for a dollar avocado biz, I would be grateful. Totally. So like we had an avocado tree in our yard and I would pick the avocados and I would sell them on the corner. And so, so this entrepreneurial spirit was certainly ingrained in me. And that was, uh, you know, I, I'm incredibly grateful for those experiences and those models. And um, you know, Were your parents I, entrepreneurs or where did that come from, do you think? Who you modeled know, that for you? My parents weren't necessarily entrepreneurs, but they were very, very hardworking. Okay. Uh, my dad was an executive in LA uh, running the uh, transit authority there in, okay. in Los Angeles. Uh, he, he also was in the Naval Reserve. So, on, you know, on the weekends he would uh, be tra doing training once a month. You know, it was just a very intentional, focused, uh, I would say, you know, on Saturday mornings, we were having what we would call work parties in the yard. Okay. And yeah. so, so it's actually just called work, but my parents branded it work parties. That. That's good. So, uh, but I, you know, I, I, I look at those experiences and I think, you know, I would not be the man I am today. I would not have the mindset that I have today about, you know, opportunities and possibilities and the the joys and challenges of starting things and building things. And so I'm quite, quite grateful for that. So literally my whole life, I, I think I've been a serial entrepreneur okay. business person and I've loved, I've loved every minute of it. Good. I Almost love that. every so, minute of it. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> if you're a serial entrepreneur who's loved every minute of it, we should talk because you yes. either have the Midas touch or you're a little bit not right fully in the head and you've been exactly. sleeping through the really hard parts. No, I'm just kidding. Exactly. But, um, tell us a little bit about, so you went to high school when you graduated from high school, what, like, did you know what you wanted to do? How did you think about going to university and, and how you would say, start, talk to us about kind of those like early formative vocational years. Yeah. I think one of the things that I learned in terms of my own pathway in, in terms of the work that I do today is like, I really started learning in my high school, the things that I did not like the things that I was not a fit for. Mm -hmm. And to be honest, I was never a fit for sort of higher education and sort of the institutional training of things. I was very much more like a, I, I would rather learn about farming in the field versus mm -hmm. farming in a classroom. And I yeah. think you can certainly have both, both are great learning places to learn about mm -hmm. farming, but um, so I'm, I'm very much like a guy liked to get his hands dirty. So like in high school, you know, I was on this pathway to go to college. And I remember that my first semester of college was uh, D's and F's. Mm. And if that doesn't sort of wake you up, that mm. you're not cut out for something. Yeah. Uh, that Those grades certainly showed me that maybe I should look at a different uh, way to uh, learn about life and business. And my path may not be the path that I thought it was going to be. Wow. Okay. Let's, let's tap into that a little bit. Tell us about... What's it like to be, was it, well, one, I'll ask the question of, was it an expectation in your family that you would go to college and graduate from college? Okay. Very so we're coming so. from a, like, this is the standard operating procedure. Uh, yes. So tell us about being what, 18, 19 years old, doing the thing that your family expects you to do this kind of like known quantity path and just having this epic roadblock of 
D's and F's. How did that impact you? What was the story you told yourself in the time, like in the moment where you're going like, this is not working? Will you just tell us a little bit about that experience? Yeah. You know, what's interesting is um, I don't think I judge myself very much on that. I think what I use, and this has been my approach for all things, is use use it as data. Hmm. And one of the things I had to have a hard, and at 19, I was kind of surprised that I'm even thinking in these terms, but I had to have a hard look at myself and just say, um, I can't even pretend to care about college. Mm-hmm. Like I can't find any source of motivation for this concept or this plan for my life. And that's a really hard place to be in the sense you look inside of you and go, can I just get, at, get this out? Can I just find something inside of me that would make me care about, I don't know, whatever the topic was that I was flunking mm-hmm. out of and this whole thing called college. And I couldn't. And I just had, you know, I think a lot of us are in those places where we're on these paths or we on the, we're on these roads to that have been pre- prescribed for us or we feel like we should do or whatever the sort of narrative is around it. And I think, you know, at an early age, I just had a real gut check and said, if I can't find any sort of motivation or desire this probably isn't the path that I should yeah. be on, to be honest were, with that. Were you, how did you perform in high school? What kind of student were you in high school? You know, listen, I was a really good student and could pull it out and do the homework. And I would not say I'm, I'm a, I'm a bright guy. I'll just put it that way. But that did not translate at all into testing and grades and projects I'm a, I'm an Enneagram five also. And so one of the things Enneagram fives do is they like to learn on their own and through their mm-hmm. own ways. And so I think I went to high school cause I had to, but then when I went to college, I realized that I actually I had a choice. Okay. Yeah. So that was the difference. The motivation maybe for high school came out of, I literally have to get through this. Mm-hmm. Whereas in college it did become more of like, there's another door that I could walk through. That's right. Okay. So tell us what happened. So did you drop out after your first semester? Is that right? One semester? I, uh, well, what happened is I went straight from a university to, uh, trying a community college part-time. Okay. Just like, and again, so much of this was about making my parents happy. Totally. Yeah. And yeah. I think a lot of us can probably relate to that at some yeah. level. Uh, kept trying, kept doing very marginal, uh, still found zero motivation for it. Tried a diff- some different you know, topics or majors and just could not figure it out to the point where I ended up kind of on my educational journey, ro- slowing that down or almost uh, bringing that to an end to my parents' great sadness, by the way. And they still talk about it today. So there, there's still a lot of, uh, you know, disappointment in their, their, their life that their son did not finish college or, but that's okay because what I did was I started started a business okay. and that business took off and was incredibly successful. And what was the business? It was a design firm called Plato okay. Studios. And okay. uh, I did that for 10 years and we grew and up. And you were like, tw- what, 20 when you started it? Uh, well, probably a little, little bit late, later 20s. Yes, okay. later okay. 20s because I was okay. still kind of dabbling with college part time. Okay. So we spent several pools. years here oh, doing yes. some hodgepodge. What what's going on in my life before the launching of the first business? Absolutely, and, and probably okay. the thing that I would change is that I would just have been more honest with the fact that 
this wasn't for me instead of trying to make mm-hmm. a square peg fit in a round hole. And that's mm-hmm. what I was doing for several years mm-hmm. until finally, like, I can't do this anymore. Started the company and that just took off and ended up being really my life for 10 years okay. um, doing that type of work. Okay. So first question I have for you is for our listeners who are going, but how do you know? How do you know when it's time to just accept reality and go, I'm not made for this. I'm not meant for this. It's not working. And and then how do you know when to actually just dig your heels in and be gritty and persevere at the thing after having gone through several years that in hindsight, you would now go, I wish I would have just earlier accepted the reality. How would you kind of counsel or guide people who might be in the midst of that, of going, I'm not on the other side yet. I don't have hindsight. I don't know. Do I keep going and keep trying to figure it out or do I just, do I just call it? Yeah. You know, I work with, I'm an executive coach. And so I work with a lot of leaders and a lot of different types of people trying to figure out these questions. And the, probably the most powerful thing that we can do in our lives is tell ourselves the truth. Mm -hmm. And I don't think many of us are actually very good at that. Uh, I know in my own life, I'm pretty good at denial. Mm-hmm. I'm pretty good at listening to what other people's ideas for my life are. Mm. Um, and so I think first and foremost, if you're in that place, this just it's okay to tell yourself the truth. If something doesn't work for you, and there's so much pressure in our society, so much pressure on social media, so much pressure from our families to fit into a particular uh, context, that be a mm-hmm. particular, have a particular um, lifestyle, a particular path that we go on. And I'm just under the belief, like we're all unique human beings. I think we have many of the same desires and needs and what have you, but we really should get more comfortable embracing who we are Mm -hmm. and our desires and needs. And most of us have been taught that our desires and needs are secondary to everybody else's desires and needs. Mm -hmm. Or sometimes even to our own I found in my own life that I I don't feel quite as influenced by, I think, some people as like what other people need and expect of me. But where I struggle is going my true, true self versus this like kind of ego layer self of going Mm -hmm. like this ego layer is telling me this is what it looks like. This is who you should be. This is meaningful. This is da, 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 da. And so it's like my in my own head going like, no, 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 you are those things because you need to be those things because you've assigned more value to those things and the things that maybe you actually are in your core. And woo, I can tell myself some stories to try to convince myself that it's like I have oh, this yes. little little person on my shoulder being like, well, if only you were more like this. Oh, um, gosh, yes. So tell us a little bit about, so you started this company in your late twenties and then you did that for 10 years. Mm -hmm. Tell us about the ending. Tell us about why, why 10 years? I want to know eventually what came after that, but, but before we even get to there, how did you know that it was time to move on to the next thing? Yeah. Again, I think it's, it, it's a story of desire and a story of checking in with, with Mike's heart. And I'm a big believer in trusting your gut, trusting your heart, listening to yourself, listening to your body. You know, all of these things that we tend to not do because we're Mm -hmm. so busy uh, building things and doing Mm -hmm. things and Mm -hmm. what have you. And I remember I went through 10 years in my motivation. And this was a great, great company and 60, about 60 employees working with uh, clients all over the country, multimillion dollar contracts. I mean, it was a big, successful firm, award-winning. 
and I remember just kind of the energy and the the juice for this building this company and continuing to do this type of work was just fading every day. Mm -hmm. And so I did this kind of intensive two day life planning, uh, Mm -hmm. thing with a, with a kind of a facilitator. And Mm -hmm. I remember writing on my charts, these two words, I'm done period. And I remember going in the office and, um, I had, I mean, as a founder of the company, you, you have a lot of freedom. Mm-hmm. Yeah, a lot of a lot of perks. I mean, there was a lot of good things about mm-hmm. this organization, and it's still still in business today. It's like doubled and tripled since I've been there, which is awesome. Um, mm-hmm. So this is always is a good story for everybody. But I just I I said I, I can't do this for another ten years, wow. and I'm feeling called to do more what I would just call transformational work with people, and um, so I kind of transitioned over six months and. So it was so, six months from the moment mm-hmm. where you wrote, I'm done, yeah. to when you had your goodbye donuts and left the building. That's right. Okay. Wow. Well, amazing job for you. I feel like that was a very efficient story of like, I felt discontent. I did some introspection. I made a hard decision. I executed on the hard decision and uh, moved into the next season. So tell us a little bit about what it what was the next season. And was there a moment between walking out of the doors of that firm? Because that's a, I think that that is something, if you're not an entrepreneur, if you're not a venture builder, the enormity of that. Like, I think the average person can get, I walked out of a marriage after 25 years, or I lost a child, or I sent all my kids off to college, and but I was a stay-at-home mom, you know, like, but I think if you haven't done what you did, as a fellow founder and builder, like that's one of the more significant things that I could hear somebody go of like, it's your baby. And I say that mm-hmm. having also real human babies and there are, there are differences, but I joke that my company was absolutely my first baby. And so there's so much of your life and your identity and your friends and your connections and your purpose that get tied up into that. So what was what was the biggest challenge for you in making that transition and finally kind of deciding that it needed to be done? Um, maybe tell us about the thing on the front side that was challenging. And then I would love to hear about the most challenging thing once you actually did the deed and walked out the door and entered into the next season. Yeah. I think that when I was in it and kind of in that, that season of bringing that, those 10 years to a close, I think there was this real sense that I was, I was letting everybody down. Mm-hmm that it was this, mm-hmm. I was disappointing a lot of people. Yeah. Um, I had, you know, I had started with a, a partner, a co-founder of the company. I really felt like I was letting him down and that we were on this journey and now I was getting off the bus. Mm, and so yeah. a lot of, lot of that, I don't, I guess guilt for sure. Um, and then kind Which of, that is like a marriage of sorts. Like is. you did not make a vow to your business partner till death do we part. But man, in my life, and I've had some kind of like more classic personal life, no business at all involved betrayal. And then I have had business things that literally weren't betrayal. They were totally within the realm of like ethical behavior in my body. Those two things actually were more similar than different, even in Mm -hmm. my head where I was like, I know this is okay. This is good. Nobody did anything wrong. But when you build with somebody, there is 
an intimacy, there is a connection, there is a trust, there is a whole like you build a lot of times founders, you do, the organization ends up getting built around both of you and in your individual strengths and then how, you know, the alchemy that you create together. And so that sense, again, it's like for folks who aren't entrepreneurs or builders, I just kind of want to say what Mike is saying is like, I think more akin to a marriage and in that intensity of I'm letting somebody down. We had shared dreams. We were doing it together. And then I changed my mind is like, that's a really powerful force that can keep people in a place because that sense mm-hmm. of kind of loyalty and commitment is you go through a lot together to build a company. And that, that connection is really real. Could not agree more, Liz. I mean, that it, it is like a marriage and it's all those emotions, all of those like back and forth thinking in your brain. The good thing that I was blessed with in that particular partnership was a supportive partner who understood kind of the, where I was, my, I don't want to call it calling, but just being called to, or a new, mm-hmm. the new season. Mm-hmm. He was, he was very much a, a great cheerleader of what mm-hmm. I was doing and sort of my unique set of gifts that he understood could be used perhaps in a more formidable way than at the studio. So I was grateful in that sense, but Mm -hmm. it didn't make it any more emotionally uh, less turbulent for me as I kind of processed all that. Do you remember the day that you told him that you were done? Yeah, it was terrifying. Terrifying. Yeah. I, I, I dreaded the conversation. I dreaded getting those words out Mm -hmm. that I'm leaving. And just like fat tongue, dry mouth, like how do you, practice it 90 different ways, but how do you actually say it? Oh man. Okay. So tell us, so then you did it. You worked through all of those really, really significant challenges and fears to get to the other side. So now I want to know it's day one. You had Mm -hmm. the goodbye party. You wrapped up, you did all of your offboarding, all of the things you said, good luck. I love you. I'll support you. And then the next day you woke up. Mm -hmm. What was that day like? Um, uneventful <laughs> this the the problem with all of this is like as we think about entrepreneurialism or starting things or leaving companies i think all of us have this jerry Maguire sort of hollywood concept and i have felt that most days of my life are you would not want to be filming them because they're so totally dull and uneventful uh, they're real days and they're important days. I believe every day has significance and meaning, but I think I woke up and I said, okay, let's just, I got to start figuring this out. I mean, from mm-hmm. a financial standpoint to, uh, mm-hmm. I had to build something new. I was starting mm-hmm. from scratch. Um, I did believe in what I was doing. I think there was conviction and all that was great, but it was a, like most endeavors and most things that were, that are important to us. It just, it's a long process. Mm-hmm. And so it was just day one and not a lot happened on day one, except like, okay, I'll take one step forward to getting closer to where, uh, I want to be. And so, so you had a, take. you had a, cl- you had a pretty clear vision and I imagine it developed over that six months of what was next. You didn't have the like abyss of like, I know what, I know it's not that, but I have to enter into a free fall period of figuring out what it is. You were kind of like your, your transition was as you were exiting this building, you were starting to get a vision and a real kind of sense of confidence in what was next for you. 
Yeah, because basically what I what I wanted to do was be in the people business. I didn't want okay. to be in the design business. Mm-hmm. And even when I was in the design business, I approached it from being in the people business. So I remember many times with clients, we'd be working on some environmental design project. And, um, you know, I would be talking to the client about their family, about their fears, about their challenges. And then my business partner was talking about the batch of projects. So. Isn't it amazing? <laughs> Isn't it amazing what people, people will do? To engineer any situation to actually just be so you could be in the people business. I joke that I'm like, we don't, you know, I'm in the ethical and sustainable fashion space, which I care about deeply on an ideological level. But I say often to people like, yeah, it's fashion. It's really people and it's community and it's connection and it's impact and it's purpose. And like, yeah, fashion's kind of my like Trojan horse. Like, okay, Mm -hmm. I got to do the fashion to get to the people, <laughs> but it yes. is amazing what we will try to do to, uh, to get to, I think that's the like beautiful part of the human spirit of, even if we aren't in, um, you know, like, a external situation or environment that is like perfectly aligned in that way, the human spirit to go like, I'll find my way there. Like, even within this, we will make this about that. I think it's just a testament to how uniquely we are each wired and almost that kind of like gravitational pull towards the thing that that brings us to life totally which is why i think generally i don't stress too much about where i'm going because mm. i i really believe that i'll end up in the right place i i really yeah. do like yeah i don't have to control it i don't have to worry about the context or what the business card title says i know that i'll i'm going to end up in the right places that were meant for my foster and same mm-hmm. with you, Liz, and same with your mm-hmm. listeners. You will end up in the right place if you keep listening to the the deepest desire of what you really want to do. I really want to help people. So I'm just moving into spaces where I can do that at the most maximized way. Yep. So, okay, so you graduated, graduated, you left your company and you started building the Mike Foster people business. Mm -hmm. Tell us a little bit about that journey. You started writing books. I probably the podcast in there somewhere. Mm -hmm. Tell us about kind of like, how did you build a people business? What did that look like? What were those building blocks for you? Yeah. So I I started uh, writing uh, mostly about second chances and Mm. comebacks and dealing with failure. Um, I, I, I've found as many different ways to connect with people and all types of people. My story has been very interesting in terms of the, the, the places that I've been dropped into to learn about people. Cause that's one of the things I do uh, think is one of my superpowers. I'm passionately curious about people's lives mm-hmm. and what makes them tick and who they are. So like I've, I've been, I've done work within um, the porn industry. Mm-hmm. I've done work uh, in maximum security prisons uh, I've actually yeah. talked to people on death row. Like, so all of these experience, I love all of it, by the way. And yeah. Yeah. I think all of, I've learned so much. Actually, I've learned more from the extreme context mm. that people are in versus maybe the more normal, uh, mainstream environments yeah. that people are in. But I just started taking good notes and trying to capture kind of what, you know, what makes people tick, what makes them who they are, how does trauma and pain play a part in that? And I've been doing that now almost for 20 plus years of just trying to figure uh, out what makes human beings 
tick and what makes them awesome and also what makes them very frail and help help kind of put that in a very simple uh, form. And that's that's what, you know, I'm always trying to write and create things to help people. That's good. So I imagine the last 20 years have not been, I left my company, I started in the people business, and then it's just been all roses and sunshine and unicorns and clouds since then. Tell us in those two decades of really meaningful, heartfelt work, what's a moment in your story that just was kind of a pluck up? Brutal, hard, you could go back, there might be some things that you would do differently. Um, any or all of the above is how we define pluck ups. Will you will you tell us about a, a point in your journey? Yeah, I have many. Um, and some of them have been just absolutely brutal. And some of them are uh, you could read about it online probably, but I'll tell you, uh, I'll tell you one. Of this them. would be when I, this will be, this will be when I disclose it because we have so many friends in common and I know ish of your work. I did not do my background research. I'm embarrassed <laughs> to admit that because I usually do great research, but I don't know what you're about to say. Cause I haven't done any pre-work on you, Mike Foster. Well, good. This will be, uh, maybe I'll uh, do some post-work. I don't know. We'll see. Yeah. <laughs> Um, but I'll give you one, and this is uh, this one actually was uh, fairly publicized and still still receives sort of uh, people are interested in the story um, mm. because I think there's a lot to learn from it. Mm. But early days, of just kind of social media, Twitter. I released, I co-wrote a book with a friend of mine on leadership, uh, and I used um, kind of the framework or the the themes of. Uh, ninjas, which was a big, like when I was growing up as a kid of the eighties, like I was a big fan of uh, martial arts and mm -hmm. um, ninjas and just, you know, like all of this sort of stuff. And so Bruce Lee was a big, um, uh, you know, hero of mine. And so I wrote a book with my friend about using the metaphor of ninjas as these mm. um, uh, threats to our integrity. And okay. so kind of yeah. these different areas, it was this beautiful graphic book, graphically mm. designed book. I used a lot of the design things that um, I had learned and created this really beautiful book, simple book uh, on leadership. And uh, we self-published it for the first year, sold a lot of copies, you know, speaking about it. Um, you know, we had small And this was stuff. your first book, right? This was... Second, I think. Okay. Second book. Okay. Okay. Yeah. And um, got involved in a, a, I guess you guess a Twitter spat between okay. somebody who took, who did not like the usage of the metaphor. Okay. Um, mm -hmm. In the vein of like cultural appropriation was the exactly. critique. Yeah. Exactly. Again, I, this is so much, no, I know so much more today than I sure, do. Yeah. And certainly yeah. make some very different decisions uh, yeah. back then. But, um, so kind of created, uh, a lot, this, he, the individual that took, um, sort of some criticisms towards what we we're doing. Also, this was his message. Okay. Like it, it was his life message, his work. And we, we were- Was around I, cultural appropriation? Yes. And stopping I, it. Okay. Absolutely. Yeah. Okay. And so um, the book had got picked, he he came into the picture when our book got picked up by Zondervan, and then it had much more of a mainstream, mm -hmm. maybe I shouldn't have used the publisher's name, but who cares? Google it. It's all there. Um, it, it had a more mainstream release kind of, mm -hmm. and then- uh, 
got a lot of attention online and social media. And we were, I was not, we weren't arguing about this. We were just, we just had produced the book and he was making some very harsh critiques about who we were as people, what the book meant. Um, yeah. And this is all of, happening on the internet. It's all happening on the internet. What are so. you doing? Are you engaging in the conversation on the internet? And if so, what was your, where did you engage? How did you engage? Yeah, my, our, we had actually had a blog uh, that had, uh, uh, you know, people that were able to comment on the blogs. We left the blog posts and comments open because, yeah. you know, I, in many ways, I'm an activist too and um, believe in people with strong ideas. And so I wasn't afraid of the ideas and, mm -hmm. and people disagreeing. In fact, I was actually learning a lot until it starts slipping as most things do on social media into actually now we're into complete sort of vitriol and meanness. And so there was eventually I probably close to a thousand comments, posts on our own blog. And we're like, yeah. you know, we probably should ch probably like call it a day on these comments. All that, all that lovely fervor we have around free speech and dialogue. Yes. We're maybe going to go back on that right yes. now and shut the blog comments down. Yeah. 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 So it eventually becomes like this thing and this, this, uh, water cooler topic. And wow. I mean, we could, and we weren't actually not saying much. We were just open to the dialogue. Yeah. Uh, I didn't, and were I you would, like, I don't even know how to ask this in a way that. <laughs> no, please come on. Liz. I'm just going to go, go. Were you like a big enough deal at the time that you felt like your friends knew what was going on, your family? Like, was this kind of like, it's in the news that not like probably CNN nightly news, but like it's in the world enough that all of your people know about it or does it feel oh, yes. a little bit more kind of like an isolated? No, okay. there's no, nothing it was isolated like, about this. Like people that knew exposed. you from like the running club were like, Oh yeah, we're watching what's going down on the internet. Mm -hmm. okay. Oh yeah. Ooh, okay. Yeah. It was okay. one of those. It was, okay. um, and, uh, you know, again, I, 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 my approach was I wanted to, honor the conversation because I, wow. I do think that's that's just generally the best approach is to listen. Um, the, the thing is, you, you I think one of the things I did learn is that you can listen so much and not actually push back on mm. things that are untrue or inaccurate mm. that you get into really a, a, a bad place. And the bad place that we got into is we got called into a, a meeting with our lawyer and the president of the uh, of Zondervan and said, we're pulling your book. And so I am like, so my big pluck up, Liz, is I am an author of a banned book, a book that has been removed from the stores of Barnes and Noble and everywhere that they had put it out there. And, you know, the other nice thing was that they're, um, I think everybody, I, I have a lot of grace for everybody in this situation. Yeah. I've actually talked to the guy who led the charge. We have uh, um, had sat down and had a really kind of wow. brief but important conversation yeah. of just yeah. reconciliation. And um, I get all the dynamics and pressures that people were under in this moment. But um, yeah, it was really embarrassing and mm. a huge fail. And uh, especially from a guy who just wanted to help people. It's always yeah. been my desire. Yeah. Here I'm in really part of something or a project that um, has caused a lot of hurt. And that was the exact opposite of what I wanted to do. Oh, thank you, Juan. Just thank you so much for sharing that.
I know we, it turns out, could have looked it up on the internet, so it's out there, but I think it's still courageous to talk about it and to hear that from your perspective. I'm curious, when you're in the midst of it, both kind of even, not, not even just, you know, kind of the moment where it got pulled, but even before that, when you're kind of, you know, scrolling through these blog comments and feeling like everybody in your life knows what a deal this is becoming, what was your, what was your story that you told yourself um, about you, about you, like this is happening because Mike Foster, what? Uh, Mike Foster was too, uh, reactive and impulsive in early communications. Mm. It, it literally started with, I, he sent me an email, um, and kind of gave this critique of what mm -hmm. the book was. Mm -hmm. By the way, I don't think he actually had read the book. He just was looking at the marketing materials mm -hmm. of the book. Mm -hmm. And um, I just said, I, I disagree with you. And I was kind of, I, I think it was too brief and sort of, um, you know, we're, we're going to agree to disagree, but I'm not engaging with you on this. This And this was privately via email before yes, it went to social media. Yeah. So I was having these private emails that event then got posted online of seeing my sort of quote unquote dismissiveness. And yes, maybe I, I think I was dismissive because I wasn't agreeing with what he was saying. And I knew my intention. I knew kind of my desire to help people. I'd been doing this for an entire year already as a self-publisher. And then it had just been released totally. in yeah. traditional publishing. So I think I, I would have um, probably formulated my words better and a bit, been a bit more thoughtful about communication, knowing that now that these these emails are online and are on his blog and on other people's wow. blogs and on yeah. kind of like, yeah, I probably should have been a lot smarter about how I say things. And so it's almost like a you had like a double pluck up, like a pluck up within the pluck up that maybe, you know, the decision to use a metaphor that is, you know, uh set in a specific culture that is not your culture, that is taken out of that context to illustrate a broader point, blah, 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 blah. So it was like the decision to use the metaphor being pluck up number one. Mm -hmm. And then decision number two is how you responded to pluck up number one kind of created pluck up number three, four, and five. Is that totally. an accurate way to like, I think that's, that's how most pluck ups work. They start, yeah. um, it, they probably, and I, I, my pluck up number one was ignorance, right? Not doing right. a bit. I, so my passion, my desire, the things that I liked. I love Bruce Lee. I love sure. karate. It just seems so obvious. Like, why can't I write a book about that? Yeah. But, yep. um, so maybe... I have a child whose main motivation in life right now is earning Ninjago Legos. So I feel that on a, <laughs> on a, a primal level, if you will. Yes, totally. So I think all those are real things and, um, you know, we can learn, I, I've learned so much from that. I know what it's like to be, uh, embarrassed in front of everybody. Mm. I know what it's like to fail in a pretty big way. And mm -hmm. in a sense, it's, it's given me a lot of immunity to mm. my, my future failures that I've been a part of, yeah. but it's also given me a lot of compassion, mm. um, for those yeah. who go, go through those things. Yeah. And, um, I, I definitely have a heart for people who, um, you know, mess up. And, yeah, up. and mess up on the internet because that's just mm -hmm. a whole different like there is a there's just a different social psychological 
thing at play when your mistakes are so public and when how people are communicating about them, they're not face to face. And there's all the terrible things about what people think that they can say and how they can say it when there's the when you're hiding behind a screen. But when that's you and your work, um, I imagine that is just a tender anxiety producing place. How how long did it take you? Like, I mean, I, I'm imagining, like, if this were me, I'm losing sleep over this. I am, like, sick to my stomach about it. It's like I wake up in the morning and the first thing I'm thinking about is this. How long did it take you to go from feeling like you were in the kind of twirly-whirly washing machine of the pluck up to having a little bit more perspective, compassion, the lessons learned? Yeah, tell us a little bit about that transition. It, it, it probably took about two years uh, to actually sort of emotionally and psychologically recover from that. Um, yeah. You know, I remember taking so much of like all the materials and the books and all the sort of stuff that I had in this uh, little warehouse unit. I remember just like taking all this stuff and throwing it into the, into oh the dumpster. Oh my right? gosh, like, that's this, like, like such a literal like physical experience of yes. your block up oh wow like and so like i think it takes time to just recover and i think yeah. we, it's okay that it takes time um and i think what i'm was still your, learning what the was lessons your, yeah, always totally. learning lessons what was your hiding or shame temptation in that moment so it's like did you kind of feel like you know, I feel like some people might go, I got to get back in the ring because I got to prove myself. Other people are like, I'm out of the game and I never want to be in this position again. Like, what was your coping mechanism that you more most naturally kind of gravitated during the moment where you're still like, I, I, this is affecting my sleep and my appetite and all of the things. Yeah. I think one of the things that was, uh, that I'm most proud of, and I think it just, uh, goes with the whole theme of, my life is uh, probably a week or two later, I started this really kind of simple uh, online blog talking about failure and processing it with people, like what I'm experiencing, what this feels like, what this looks like, and not as a victim. I'm not interested in, in victimhood or anything like that, but just talking about it in a real way. So like I was privately healing. I was also trying to use my own experience that everybody just watched as an opportunity for us to feel more connected and maybe less yeah. embarrassed about our own failures. Ooh. Ooh. And so that I really, again, I want to help people. It's always been my desire. And so it took, and that even became its own thing within its, within a thing. It's like, and that's, that's why I'm not overly uh, scared of failure or scared of mm. pain or afraid of challenge because there's so much that can be harnessed from that. And that's not just like an inspirational cliche. I've actually lived that yeah. in multiple versions of yeah. experiences. And yeah. I actually believe that who I am today, the strength that I have today, the resilience that I have today, the wisdom that I have today, the way that I'm able to, to help people in yeah. their lives is because of the plot. Yeah. yeah. Yep. Mike, where can people find you? If they loved this and they want more Mike Foster, you have an incredible 
new book and kind of whole like program and philosophy out there in the world. I actually have a very dear friend of mine that just did a weekend with you and Bob and she learned about her primal question and her superpower and it was really life-giving and informative to her. So that's, that is a five-star Yelp review from a friend of a friend <laughs> that we are now giving to our community. But where can people find out about all this work that you're doing? Yeah, uh, probably the best uh, next step is just up going to my website, mikefoster.tv. It has my brand new book there and kind of the, the deep dive into what that's all about. Also, there's a free assessment so you can understand what your primal question is, which is basically your hidden programming that drives everything in your life. And so um, mikefoster.tv would be the best uh, next step. All right, great. And just a little teaser. I took the primal questions. I know mine, but I haven't shared it with Mike. So I, we're going to flip-flop and I'll be over with Mike on his show. And uh, yes. we're going to be diving into that a little bit more. So keep your eyes peeled and make sure you follow and subscribe to his show if, you know, you don't get enough of me running my mouth on this one. So, woo. All right, Mike. Thank you so much for... Yeah, just not just sharing the situation, but kind of delving deeper with us of the impact that that makes. And I truly believe, I mean, it's like one of the whole points of the show. We are only as sick as our secrets. And mm -hmm. when we share about our failures and our embarrassments, my, my greatest hope for this show is that we are creating a library of folks who are sharing their moments so that the people that we get to serve and who listen to our stories go, Okay, well, I never wrote a book about a ninja, but I did this, this, and this, and I know that I'm not alone and yes. that I know there is tomorrow. And like that, that at some point, and I think this is something that we can't tell people in the moment, which is why I think I feel really excited about creating the library of stories that they can opt into, is to go like, there, there's purpose in our pain. And Absolutely. there will be a moment um, that you probably see that. Now, I think there's also certain types of tragedy and loss and grief where, frankly, I don't know if people ever get there because it's just too great. But when it comes to kind of our mistakes in this realm, I think that there's something so beautiful about just feeling stronger together when we feel like, okay, I'm not the only one. So I just really appreciate you adding to our library of pluck ups and just really appreciate you and the work that you are doing in the world. So keep going. Thanks, Liz. Thanks. It's been been awesome being with you today and uh, getting, to, getting to share a bit of my uh, story of failure, mistakes, and uh, how to eventually learn from them. Appreciate it. All right. Thank you all so much for listening to this episode. You know that for updates and announcements about the show, you can also visit LizBohannon.co or follow me on Instagram. I'm at LizBohannon and I love, love, love to hear from my pluckies. So until next time, stay plucky.